my pleasure to welcome you to this year's IPS Northern Lecture Series by Mr. Patrick Daniel, our 11th SR Northern Fellow for the Study of Singapore. Today, Mr. Daniel will be delivering his first lecture titled The Singapore Media's Long and Winding Road, 1824-2022. Following his lecture, Mr. Daniel will take questions from the audience in the Q&A session. The Q&A session will be chaired by Professor Chan Heng Chi, Ambassador at Large at the Ministry of Foreign Affairs and IPSS 7SR Northern Fellow. Before we begin, please allow me to go over some housekeeping rules for the event. The event is being streamed live on Facebook. It will also be recorded and uploaded onto our IPS website and our social media platforms later. Please submit your comments and questions at any time during the lecture through the Facebook comments. For our audience members here at Shaw Foundation Alumni House, please stand up to the mic during the Q&A session to ask your questions. We will try our best to answer as many questions as we can during the Q&A. We would also like to hear your views on the, view, on the event. There will be a link in the feed at the end of the lecture, which you can click on to submit your feedback. Our director of IPS, Janadas Devon, has recorded his opening remarks. We will now play the recording. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the 11th IPS Northern Lecture Series. Our 11th SR Northern Fellow for the Study of Singapore is Mr. Patrick Daniel, a veteran journalist and an editor with a career spanning more than three decades. He retired as SPH's Deputy CEO in August 2017, but was recently brought back into service as Interim CEO of the SPH Media Trust. I should add that Patrick is also an old friend of mine and my former boss. He is perhaps the best editor I've ever worked with. He can take any copy and edit it as slightly as possible and improve the product immeasurably without losing his individuality of voice. In this way, he did manage to convert quite a few sow's ears into silk purses. Patrick's three-part lecture series is entitled Stewardship of the Singapore Media, Staying the Course. In his first lecture today, titled The Singapore Media's Long and Winding Road, 1824 to 2022, Patrick will speak of the history of Singapore's media scene. And examining the place of media laws like the Newspaper and Printing Presses Act and the Broadcasting Act in the country's media landscape. The second lecture on 2nd March, titled Regulating the Darker Side of the Internet, Patrick will discuss the proliferation of new technological platforms and highlight the ways in which these online platforms can be regulated. And finally, Patrick will deliver his third lecture on 14th March, titled Accelerating Trends, Challenges for Singapore and the Media, when he will address the role of Singapore's media for the future. Judging from the outline of the lecture series that I've seen, and knowing Patrick, the, the series promises to be an enlivening, lively, if not controversial series. Patrick calls things as he sees them. I would like to thank Ambassador Chan Heng Chi, who is Ambassador at Large with the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, and was the seventh SR Northern Fellow for moderating today's Q&A. The SR Northern Fellowship for the Study of Singapore was established in 2014 to pay tribute to our sixth and longest serving president, the late Mr. SR Northern, 
who also happened to be, at one stage, the executive chairman of the Straits Times Press from 1982 to 1988. The fellowship named after him aims to promote greater discourse on Singapore's public policy and current affairs. Held on campus, the IPS Northern Lecture Series seeks to advance public understanding and stimulate discussion on national issues to engage the minds of Singaporeans and in particular students. With generous support from donors, we managed to raise around $6 million, including a matching grant from the government, to endow this fellowship. I would like to thank the numerous institutions, including those who give to IPS annually as part of the Corporate Associates Program, for their support and generosity in funding this fellowship, as well as supporting IPS. Without further ado, it gives me great pleasure to invite Mr. Patrick Daniel to begin his first lecture. Thank you, Director. We will now invite Mr. Patrick Daniel to deliver his lecture. Thank you, Janadas, for that very kind introduction. Uh, good evening, friends and colleagues, colleagues, uh, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for coming today. Uh, I must thank Janadas and IPS for the honor of being the 11th SR Nalan Fellow. Uh, it is especially meaningful to me because Mr. Nalan played a big part in my joining the Straits Times in 1986, and I do want to pay him a tribute today. Uh, but let me first give you the outline of what I'm going to say today. Uh, in my first lecture, I will be talking about the Singapore media, but I felt a broader historical view was needed to provide the context for the current media landscape. Um, I, I should uh, also first explain that when I refer to the Singapore media, uh, I mean the legacy or the tra traditional news media, including the di their digital versions, as opposed to the online-only media and social media. Also, the Singapore media <clears throat> is both print and broadcast, but I hope my broadcast colleagues will forgive me if being a, media, being a print man, I focus my views uh, on the print media. Uh, so my first lecture will be in three parts. Can I have the slide? Yep. Let me see where my own slides are. Yep, sorry. Um, the first part is press freedom and regulation. I want to talk about five issues at the heart of today's uh, press freedom debates, uh, and then Singapore's media laws. And I also want to ask what Singaporeans think about these five issues. And I want to suggest, you know, perhaps we should go find out how Singaporeans feel, and especially the young. Uh, second part is on looking back uh, uh, at history. I, I'll sort of cover quickly, I don't want to bore you, you know, how our newspapers uh, survived, you know, 200 years. Uh, then I want to go, and I'll talk also about our vernacular press, and I also want to talk about the second part of, of looking back is during the, the, the post-independence period, two parts to it. One was a period of, uh, you know, turmoil and crackdowns on the media. Uh, and um, I also want to talk uh, about interventions to reshape 
uh, the media landscape. Um, and then I'll, for the last part, I want to talk about the last two, uh, last two decades, uh, disruption in the media, and lastly, to bring us up to date, uh, the formation of SPH Media Trust. So that's my, my outline for the day. Um, let me also quickly show you what I'm going to talk about in Lecture 2, regulating the darker side of the internet, a global challenge. And Lecture 3, uh, talk about looking forwards. Uh, the trends which are accelerating, so things are going to come at us much faster. And I want to see what I want to talk about what the challenges are facing both Singapore and the media. Okay, so that's what I did. So, so, so let me let me say a few words about SR, as we call them. History uh, is actually a, a very good place for me to start the lecture, because as as you heard from Jaradas, he was for six years, from '82 to '86. Executive Chairman of Straits Times Press, and uh, he was sent there by uh, Lee Kuan Yew, the Prime Minister then. But interestingly, it was at the request of the top two executives of the Straits Times, Peter Lim, the Editor-in-Chief, and Lynn Holloway. Um, SR wrote about this in his memoirs, uh, An Unexpected Journey. And here's how he recollects his meeting with LKY in 1982. And he says, as I walked to the door, the Prime Minister called me back. I remember his words. Nathan, I'm giving you the Straits Times. It has 150 years of history. It has been a good paper. It is like a bowl of China. If you break it, I can piece it together, but it will never be the same. Try not to destroy it. And, and SR goes on to say, I said nothing. And he said, you are keeping silent. I said, sir, you have told me what to do. You have also I, told me what not to do. What is there for me to say? I'll try. And so I left. Now, there is so much you can read into this quote about both men. Uh, but for now, I think I'll just clearly say it was not an assignment that uh, he relished but he took it on. He initially did have a difficult time establishing rapport with SD editors and management, but he used his considerable charm and patience to win them over by deciding that he wanted to lead from the rear. He also made his mark in several areas. The first was the immediate task of repairing the strained relationship between the editors and the LKY government. I will talk about this later when I go through my, the, the history. Uh, what Chong Yip Singh called in his book, the knuckle duster era. SR achieved this without interfering in news operations. It wasn't as if like he was chief censor or anything. He, he just left it to the editors. Next, he impressed upon the editors the need to actively scout for talent. And he, he did make some successes. He also used his wide network of contacts to establish learning programs for journalists. And the signature program was a short, short sabbaticals he arranged for editors at Wolfson College in Cambridge, no less. And in my own case, he arranged, he went out of his way to arrange a three-month attachment for me at the Financial Times, which, from which I, I learned a lot. 
So I, I really you know, wanted to pay a, a heartfelt tribute to SR, really for my switch in career from civil servant to journalism. I consider myself incredibly fortunate as I found a profession that actually suited me down to my toes. That's why I stayed for 30 years. Uh, you know, when you, you love what you do, time flies. So let me start on my, my lecture proper uh, by discussing five issues which I feel lie at the heart of press freedom debates that are going on today. And there are many of them, you know, every day. There's, there's, there's Spotify and Joe Rogan and a whole bunch of stuff happening. So I wanted to try to identify these issues. Um, the first is uh, freedom of expression. Now, you know, I, I, I don't mean to go back to, to, you know, the Constitution, but really that's where it starts. And lo and behold, there, there, there are arguments just over the constitutional, you know, uh, 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 interpretations. Now, the constitutions of most democratic countries protect freedom of expression. Uh, but they're divided in, into two groups. One group has freedom of expression with no caveats. The other has freedom but with caveats. So let's take a look at some of them, starting with the first group. The first one, of course, is the US Constitution, the First Amendment, 1879. Sorry, 1789. No caveats. And it says, quite simply, Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech or of the press. That's it. Not, it says nothing else. So this is as absolute as you can get. Let me take another one. This is the UN Universal Declaration. And it says in Article uh, 19, uh, everyone has the right to freedom of opinion and expression. Uh, goes on, and then it says, actually, the Article 30 is the one I want to highlight, which is the last article. Nothing in this, in this de declaration can be interpreted as implying for any state, any person, any right to engage in any activity or perform any act aimed at the destruction of that right at the top. So this is as absolute as you can get. Yeah? Let me take you then to other constitutions where, other conventions where there are caveats. So let's look at maybe the European Convention on Human Rights. Okay, this is uh, 1950. This is Council of Europe uh, Convention. And, and the part that, you know, is interesting is, of course it says, you know, everyone has the right to freedom of expression, this article should not prevent states from requiring licensing, etc. So, first one it says it doesn't prevent states from licensing. Interesting. Then it has another one which says, the exercise of these freedoms, since it carries with it duties and responsibilities, may be subject to such formalities, conditions, restrictions, penalties, as are prescribed by law. So that's what I mean by a caveat. So here's one which is a balance. You have the freedom, but there are laws, right? So that's the European Convention. Then I want to show you the Declaration of the Rights of Man in, in France because this was exactly the same year as the First Amendment in the US, 1789. Exactly the same year. And then it says, it says, free communication of ideas and opinions is one of the most precious of the rights of man. 
every citizen may accordingly speak, write, and print with freedom, but shall be responsible for such abuses of this freedom as shall be defined by law. So this is what I mean by caveats. So there are two groups, uh, there are two types of constitutions. So what's clear is the freedom of expression is absolute in America and in the UN, but not absolute in many other countries. And this is where the problem begins. So when a Singaporean, when in Singapore, if Singapore is, sues a journalist or a politician here for defamation, and defamation is a caveat to freedom of expression, it's actually a breach of human rights in America. So, so you, you, you already start you know, with a fight just on constitution alone. But the point is that the Singapore constitution is clear. I haven't shown you the Singapore constitution. Let me show you the Singapore constitution, yeah. Every citizen of Singapore has the right to freedom of speech and expression. And then it goes on to say, parliament may by law impose you know, restrictions. You know, uh, such conditions as it considers necessary, including contempt, defamation, etc. So Singapore is in that camp, the freedom with caveats. So it's quite clear that there is no untrammeled freedom of expression, you know, in Singapore. And we just, unless somebody wants to go change the constitution for the media, that's it, guys. That's the constitution. Next issue is the freedom of the press. Now, interestingly, the US Constitution is the only one that expressly protects the freedom of the press because as you saw just now, you know, uh, most other countries, the press is an ex the freedom of the press is an extension of the freedom of expression, uh, including Singapore. Yeah? Uh, uh, most so there are no express provisions for press freedom, except in the US. So basically, journalists are protected by their own individual right to freedom of expression. Yeah. But if you take the press to mean a platform provided by the proprietor or the owner to gather, process, disseminate information to a wider audience, then what happens is the individual free speech and press freedom then become exactly not one and the same. So you can have, for example, uh, restrictions on the owner, which is separate from the individual. So here again, here's where countries that have media laws, for example, are seen as a breach of the media freedom by some other countries where the, 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 the media can do what they like. The moment you have a media law, you are breaching uh, the freedom of, of, of the media. Now, I'll speak later about this when I talk about the World Press Index, uh, the World Press Freedom Index. Uh, and I'll, I'll argue that this really, this, this part is really why we get such a low, low ranking because Notwithstanding what the European Convention says, Reporters Without Border does not accept our media laws. All our media laws are a breach of media freedom. 
That's why we get, we get such low ratings. I'll come back to that. Which then takes me to media laws. Uh, most countries have laws that restrict. Everybody has libel laws, sedition laws, privacy laws, press ownership laws, a whole bunch of laws. And these, are, these laws actually abridge media freedom. Um, inter interestingly, even in the US, which is supposed to have you know, free, the free press, Rupert Murdoch, I mean, there are uh, ownership laws for TV. And uh, Rupert Murdoch had to become a US citizen to own Fox. Now, the rationale for media laws is really the recognition that the press, as well as broadcast players, uh, both have tremendous power to advance the general good or to cause harm. And the laws are to make sure they don't cause harm and don't misuse their powers. So that's the general justification for media laws. And a further rationale is that Journalists and editors themselves need ethical guidelines, and I say this as a, as a newspaper editor, so that they don't abuse their powers. And the same goes to media owners, or more so to media owners, because they love to court political influence and are also driven by profit motives. The question, of course, is how do we ensure these ethical guidelines? Do we do it by self-regulation? Do we do it by professional code, or do we do it by legislation? A fourth area is the marketplace of ideas. I, mean, uh, I found one definition of this, so let me read it. The belief that the test of the truth or acceptance of ideas depends on their competition with one another, and not by the opinion of a censor, whether government or any other authority. So now, this draws on the economic marketplace analogy, sort of like the best product wins in the market. Now, the idea is attributed to John Stuart Mill, regarded as the most influential English-speaking philosopher of the 19th century. And he wrote a treatise in 1859 called On Liberty. And he argued that censorship, he argued against it, saying that the free flow of ideas is the best way to separate fact from falsehoods. I'll come back to uh, discussing this, but I'm just telling you what the issues are. Now, interesting, although this is not in any law or statute in the US, US courts have invoked this idea of the marketplace of ideas thousands of times to justify First Amendment rights to free speech. I mean, these are judges who cite it and let people off or say yes. You know. As one writer said, it really underpins much of First Amendment jurisprudence, this, this idea of the marketplace. Again, we'll come back to this. The last issue I want to talk about is media as the fourth estate. Now, this fourth estate is now a faded kind of idiom. It's an old idiom, you know, but it's worth recounting how it arose after the French Revolution of 1789, the same time that the French came up with their constitution and the Bill of Rights came out in the US. The French called it quatrième pouvoir, the fourth power, alongside nobility, clergy, commoners. The English preferred the word estate, which also carries the meaning of a social or political class vested with distinct powers. 
And that's why to this day, the British Parliament comprises two of the estates, the House of Lords, House of Commons. The third estate clergy kind of got disenfranchised somewhere along the way. So what is this fourth power's role, you know? Essentially, it is to check on the abuse by those in authority. Check on abuses, not the abuse. And to hold truth to power, as it were. Let me move on to those issues in the Singapore context. And let's review what the positions are. And I'll start first with where the PAP government stands. Now, I'm just listing them out. I'm not saying I believe them, so don't, don't, don't shoot the messenger. So I, I'll, I'll tell you what uh, uh, the Singapore's position is. Number one, the government does not believe in the US definition of free speech with no caveats. In any case, the caveats are written in the Constitution, so no argument. But whenever there is an argument between Singapore and the US or whoever, that's where the problem is. Number two, it does not buy the idea of a marketplace of ideas. They have said so, the PAP government, many times from Lee Kuan Yew down. Number three, it does not agree with the Western-centric notion of the media as the fourth estate of the realm. Does not agree. Number four, the government wants the Singapore media to promote societal values and help it in nation building. So instead of fourth estate, they've got an, a role that they want the media to play. And number five, the government believes, and this is uniquely Singaporean, well, I won't say unique, but very true of Singapore. The government believes that it must guard against clandestine subversion of the media. And I'll tell you why the history, why they feel this way because of the history. So now let's look at how these views shaped Singapore's media laws. The main law, of course, is the Newspaper Printing and Presses Act of 1974. This was a major piece of legislation that had a profound impact on newspaper companies. They were scrambling to reorganize, etc., their shareholdings, etc., because it has some unique provisions to regulate the ownership, management, and financing of local newspapers. So the key features of the Act are, um, sorry, let me move on. Uh, key features are, I'm, I think I'm going too fast for my, yes, no foreign ownership of the media, no local newspaper barons either. That means the ownership of newspapers has to be in Singaporean hands and all directors have to be Singaporean. And when it was passed in 74, no single shareholder could own more than 5% of the company. And this was reduced in 1977 to 3%. And then in 2002, there was an amendment where it was raised to 12% controller. That means a person together with associates can, can control no more than 12%. What it means is no Rupert Murdoch's in Singapore. You know, if, if you, for 12%, if you want to start a newspaper, you really, got to be, you really got to love the media. And very few people actually will want to put their money if that's all they own. Uh, in addition, the newspaper companies are required to create 1% of its shares as management shares to be held by parties approved by the minister. A management share has 200 times the voting power of ordinary, but only when it comes to the appointment of directors, just directors. 
And if you do the maths, 1% times 200 versus 99% times 1, it, the, the management shareholders trump. In fact, rarely has this been used, but it's there just in case. The Act also prohibits companies from receiving funding from foreigners and foreign sources without government approval. Uh, and previous provisions of uh, licenses for printing presses and yearly permits for the newspapers were retained in the 1974. It, it existed before that. And in 18, 1986, there was another amendment to this law which to allow the minister to declare a foreign newspaper as, quote, engaging in the domestic politics of Singapore, unquote, and to then restrict the number of copies that, that such, a, such a newspaper can distribute in Singapore. If, if some of you may remember this happened to Time magazine and The Economist and Wall Street Journal, etc. Now, the result of the NPPA, as I said, is that there can be no foreign ownership, uh, no local newspaper barons. Um, and let me, you know, there was a, there's a, a book called Dateline Singapore, 150 Years of the Straits Times, written by Mary Turnbull, and she summarized it quite well. She said, the objects of this law were to, number one, ensure that newspapers were not, as opposed to what it contains, I'm trying to tell you what the objectives were, Ensure that the newspapers were not used as instruments of subversion. Prevent the reproduction of foreign propaganda uh, for subversion or undesirable purposes. Keep control of Singapore's newspapers in the hands of citizens. And avoid foreign manipulation. It's hard not to draw the conclusion that the constant worry about subversion which arose from the PAP's long history, long fight with the communists, has shaped our laws. Uh, Jack Yuntong, the culture minister then, said in his winding up speech in the, on the NPPA in August of 1974, and he said, it is not the intention of the government to go into the newspaper business. Our intention is to see that newspapers are managed, are properly managed, and that they cannot be taken over by undesirable elements which may then direct their policies against the interests of the nation. That is the sole purpose of the bill, he says. Now, of course, years earlier in 1959, when Lee Kuan Yew and the PAP uh, were fighting for, for elections for the Legislative Assembly for Self-Government, didn't get the support of the Straits Times. And he wrote a sharp letter to the paper, which was then still owned by a British, by British citizen, and he said, the folly of allowing newspapers to be owned by people who are not citizens or nationals of the country is that their sense of responsibility is blunted by the knowledge that if the worst came to the worst, they could always buzz off to some other place, unquote. So that's the NPPA. Let me do a quick mention of all the other laws that affect the media sector that everyday journalists have to worry about. Uh, the Broadcasting Act of 1994, this is actually for people in the broadcast industry, a big piece of legislation. Quickly, I would say it regulates the operation and ownership of the broadcasting services just like it does for newspapers, it, but it has its own uh, uh, different uh, provisions. Uh, it, the objects are the same. It allowed for the reorganization of the broadcast industry at the time and made changes to keep up with tech developments because there was cable, there was a whole bunch of stuff. And then it 
changed the definition of broadcasting to include programs trans transmitted by whatever other means. So that's Broadcasting Act. Then there's the Defamation Act. We all know about that, 1957. The Official Secrets Act. I know a lot about that, 1935. And the Internal Security Act. Then recently, we've had a major piece of legislation called the Protection from Online Falsehoods and Manipulation Act, POFMA. This was aimed at tackling fake news and misinformation on digital platforms. It basically prohibits the communication of false statements of fact in Singapore. And lastly, I want to talk, uh, there's just uh, last year, a new act called the Foreign Interference Countermeasures Act, or FICA. This gives the government the authority to investigate individuals suspected of being foreign agents engaged in, quote, hostile information campaigns, unquote. Yeah, so that's FICA. Now, the Singapore media's challenge is that it has to do its job within the ambit of all these laws. Now, I would point out that one feature about Singapore is that its laws are applied. They're not there for sure. So we have to take them seriously. But thankfully, there is and never was any regime of prior vetting of content in the news business. Even SPH management doesn't do it. Management stay out of it. Uh, there, there is prior vetting in, in some areas like... Uh, movies, etc., where they have to uh, give you a rating. So that requires privating. But for the news business, all along, we've never had that. So let me move now to, I, I told you what the government's position was. I told you what the law is, as reflected, which reflected their position. Now I want to know, what do Singaporeans think about these challenges? I would be interested if somebody could poll Singaporeans, especially the young generation, uh, to take this up and find out these questions. What, what do Singaporeans actually think? By age group, uh, I want to ask these five questions. Uh, do the laws allow the media to do a good job? I'm not trying to uh, give excuses for the media, but you know, realistically, can we do a good job? Is there room for a responsible watchdog role? What about the notion of a marketplace of ideas? Do they believe it? And what changes are needed to allow for a greater diversity of views? I, I, wish, I hope somebody will go, you know, will, will, will go find out. But since I'm here, let me give you my views. And then you can check whether my views uh, uh, accord with uh, other Singaporeans, you know, especially young. Now, my, my view is that on the first question, can we play a good professional role? I think the media can, and it does. What it takes is for the journalist to have to, to navigate this panoply of laws. There are hundreds of journalists, good journalists in our media, in our newsroom, beavering away every day to produce good quality, meaningful work despite the laws. They don't, they don't kind of like tear their hair and say, oh, are we breaking this law? Et they just do the job. Because after a while, you know which laws, to, how to avoid uh, uh, 
getting foul of any laws. And we do, you know, sort of what we call lawyer some stories, meaning jargon for get legal advice, just to make sure that, you know, we don't get sued, uh, we don't fall foul of the law. Uh, but it's not like, you know, every day there are hundreds of stories that go to lawyers. Maybe one a week, two a week, three a week, that kind of uh, those numbers. But my own take on it is that if you think about it, um, if you have the power to defame someone, you do need to have to have a care and have a sense of fairness. So my, my, my as an editor... If I read a story and somebody comes out looking bad, that's when I tell myself, whoa, hold on. Have we been fair to this person? Are we defaming that person? Because, you know, if you have a red flag when somebody comes out looking bad, you know, looks terrible, he did this, he did that, that's how, that's the first thing, that's when you know that you might get sued, so you better be careful. So, it's no bad thing to have editors and journalists who are responsible and who double-check their facts before they publish. On the watchdog role, I, I, I believe there is you know, room for a responsible watchdog role. But it can't be their only role. I mean, you can't make the media's role a watchdog role. That's it. I mean, can you imagine if I have a newsroom of journalists who come in every morning and they say, right, who can I go after today? I mean, that's really not, you know, what a good newsroom, you know, should be doing. But equally, I would say, you can't have journalists coming and saying, which government policy can I support today? That's also bad. So, what we want are editors and journalists who think hard about the stories that our, our readers want to read or read more of and work on them. So, a kind of middle of the road. Um, on the question of societal role, uh, a nation building, actually the media is not averse to it because instead of nation building is a word which you know uh, uh, I don't like, but you know a media sh can have and should play a societal role, and we do. So, like during the COVID pandemic, there are many times when the media you know did play a society to correct misinformation encourage people to get vaccinated, or just explain what the rules are so that people are not confused. I mean, we are playing uh, that role. On the notion of the marketplace of ideas, my own view is that if John Stuart Mill were living today, he will realize very fast that the economic marketplace is full of fake goods, online scams, a whole bunch of stuff. And the idea that the marketplace of ideas will somehow differentiate between fact and, um, and, and, and fictions uh, is a bit hopeful, you know. So I think that there is no, unless you are prepared to go into the marketplace of ideas and wade through facts, I mean, wade through false information, etc., to find what is the correct thing, there has to be some sifting and some judgment. So I, I have my, my, my doubts about in this day and age, Marketplace. Maybe in his time it worked. But one point I would like to make, which is the last point. While the marketplace of ideas may not be the best paradigm, there is a growing desire among Singaporeans, both young and old, 
for a greater diversity of views. Of course, I'm talking about genuine views, and I'm not talking about you know, false, false, falsehoods and untruths and propaganda, etc. And certainly not hate speech either. But there is that view. Now, I, this can be gleaned from one of the findings of a survey I read, actually by Carol Soon of IPS. Uh, she did the survey after the last general election in 2020. And I want to show you a slide, if I may. Yeah. Now, this really jumped out at me. I have never seen, a, 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 I mean, they've been doing this for a long time, that having alternative views in parliament, you've got the second highest you know, uh, uh, reason for voting. And I, I glean from this that there is a desire. And my take on it is, as a media man is, if they want that in parliament, they must surely want it in our media. You know? And if we don't give that diversity, that's when they will all want to have it in parliament. I, no, I, I, I wish parliament you know, as, as diverse you know, views as they want. But for us in the media, we better go and check what is the mood out there. Are we giving enough? Do they want more? So that we reflect the desires of, 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 of the people that we want to reach. Uh, then uh, I want to say that uh, I have a few you know, thoughts on this about the diversity and the, 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 you know, the, the, the challenge for us is how to take a middle road and strive for diversity and fairness. Because if you look at the election results, I think it would be safe to say that on any issue, 30 to 40% would have a different view. Now, do you want to reflect that view? How do we find the, the reasonable voices who can reflect that view? And the media must try to do that. Now, there is a, a, another aspect to it which I want to get to when you try to reflect their views. We have to present the facts first when we are discussing this diversity of views. And this part of the media's job, telling the facts first, is unfortunately not well understood by many of the critics, many of our critics, because it's now a jumble. Facts, interpretation, opinion, all thrown into one. And it's called, I think, comes out of journalism school, and the sort of adding value. Now, and if, if you, if you do a story and and reader likes your interpretation or your opinions it's a good story if you don't they don't like your interpretation or, or the opinions you you quote it's a bad story and if you just give the facts that's also not good enough so it's becoming a very polarized world even here in singapore so when we strive for diversity we have to we, we ought to have a care of course uh, when i say we want facts um, which facts to select and which to omit is itself a judgment and a challenge. But I'm convinced that you know, this is what professional journalism, journalists do all the time. Uh, and um, uh, it's also why you know, the, the worry that I have is that that's why, because if we present facts, they say we are regurgitating you know, the government's views. But actually, we're just giving you the facts. I, I mean, if you get a 1,000-page Committee of Privilege uh, report uh, and you immediately pass judgment and your opinions without telling me what's in it, 
that to me is also not, not right, you know. So I think we have to explain the who, the what, the where. We can do our co commentaries separately, but we do have to communicate the facts. Now, on the, let me move to, how am I doing for time? Let me move to uh, the World Press uh, 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 Freedom Index. I just want to briefly make the point that, you know, do we really deserve to be 160th out of 160 countries in terms of world press freedom? Uh, why is this? I mean, it's baffling to many people. We are one above Somalia, one below Sudan, you know. Uh, but I, I just want to make one uh, point clear first. This is a measure of the level of freedom available to the media. This, it is not the quality of journalism in the country. So just want to clarify that. Because some, many people, many of our critics don't make that distinction. They say, oh, the Straits Times, oh, you're number 160, you know. You should be ashamed of yourself. But actually, no, it's the, the media freedom. Now, the, the, the point that I would make is that, let me tell you, uh, I, as I mentioned earlier, that their view is that our laws, our media laws, uh, breach media freedom in Singapore, and therefore we deserve to be 160. And I'll just tell you that POFMA, uh, when, they, when it uh, came up, they punished us by dropping us seven places. We were 150-something. POFMA came up, boom, we dropped seven places. FICA came up next, next year, by this time next year. I guarantee you we'll drop some more. But it comes back to the point that I made earlier, that where the Constitution allows you to have media laws, uh, we're not breaching, you know, we're not, that's our view of uh, media freedom. We will run foul of the people who are absolutists and say, you can't have a POFMA. And as I pointed out earlier, that, you know, if you look at what POFMA is, it just says you cannot communicate false facts in Singapore. That's it. So for everybody else who is doing a good job produce, you know, talking truthfully, POFMA doesn't affect us. It only affects you if you go out there and, and you communicate false facts. And also, even if you communicated a false fact, what do they do? Please take down. Please put a correction. That's about it. Now, the idea of trying to control that, I, I can't see why you know, we deserve 160. So enough said. Okay, so let me move on. I want to move to looking back at history. Uh, let me start with uh, uh, Singapore media in colonial times. Uh, first paper, uh, 1824, Singapore Chronicle. And the amazing thing about this story is, in 24, when they started, there was already licensing of newspapers in 1824. Started by the British East India Company, the headquarters, applied the 1823 law to all their, their territory, including Singapore and the Strait Settlements. Um, then we go on to 1835, Singapore Free Press, uh, which was actually started by big names, you know, Edward Bowstead, uh, William Napier, the first, uh, Singapore's first lawyer, and George Coleman, the superintendent of public works. And they had a good run for, a, for almost a century, and then the Straits Times uh, merged with them or they merged with the Straits Times. And the Straits Times came along in 1845, started by a, a Armenian merchant, Kachik Moses, 
uh, with a British editor. Um, and then the interesting part was 1840s was a year of, was a decade of growth, high growth. Population was 40,000, went to 60,000. Then P&O ships, steam ship, it, uh, and, and there was fierce competition between Straits Times and the, and the free press. Uh, other key dates, uh, 67, opening of Suez Canal, weekly sailings, 40 days to get mail. Uh, 1871, sea cable laid, and we had cable news. Uh, and then we had the first proper cons uh, census in 1871, uh, 97,000 inhabitants, 922 Europeans, 2,200 Eurasians. Circulation of the Straits Times, 300 this is 1871. Uh, then 1914 was the first local paper, the Malaya Tribune, started by uh, Dr. Limbun Lim King. The People's Paper, and it charged five cents. Uh, 23, the opening of Causeway, uh, and uh, ST began coverage of the Malay states, and we, ST even had their own correspondent in KL. Can you imagine? It, 1923. Now, then, in uh, that same year, in, in, sorry, in uh, nine, I, I'm jumping now, 1930s, fierce competition between uh, uh, newspapers. Uh, the Malaya Tribune overtook the Straits Times, and in 38, Straits Times cut its price to five cents to match the people's paper. Uh, and, uh, and Mary Turnbull, actually, in her history of the Straits Times, writes, this cover price cut was probably the most important single decision ever taken by the Straits Times because it changed the character of the paper, its aims and its ambitions, the content change, more coverage of local events and Asian life. Then came the World War. Uh, uh, ST became the Xionan Times. Uh, after the war, interestingly, ST decided to be a pan-Malayan paper, not just a Singapore paper. 1950. ST became a public company, and interestingly, when, it, when the Straits Times became public in 1950, they too had 1% management shares. And they had 300 times the voting power, and these management shares were given to the pre-listing owners so that they will remain in control. So the management shares were not uh, uh, invented by MCI. It was invented by the colonial... So let me uh, move on quickly. There was uh, riots in 1950, and this was a major turning point for English press. There was a custody, if you remember, custody, custody battle over a 13-year-old girl, uh, daughter of a Dutch father, Eurasian mother. That's her there. Um, and um, three days of rioting, um, 18 people killed, mostly Europeans and Eurasians, 173 wounded. Hundreds arrested, press was blamed. So Mary Turnbull says, the Hertog riots taught the Straits Times a sharp lesson, which was brought home all the more forcefully, forcibly by the fact that Europeans and Eurasians were singled out for attack. The violence revealed deep racial passions below the deceptively calm surface, which could easily be unleashed by emotional reporting and dramatic pictures. From that time, the paper's policy was to tread warily and avoid inflaming racial or religious passions. The experience of the Hertog riots proved a more effective and lasting lesson than restrictive 
legislation. So, you know, as they say, you know, the more things change, the more they seem they stay the same. You know, plus ça change. You know. Um, then comes uh, 1959. Now, this was an important year as well. Lee Kuan Yew was fighting to become prime minister in doing self-government government, and ST did not support him. So there were furious attacks by Lee Kuan Yew. And PAP won, and guess what? The Straits Times moved its headquarters from Singapore to Kuala Lumpur and stayed there. The editor was a Eurasian by the name of Leslie Hoffman. That's him. Big fight with Lee Kuan Yew, and he said, thank you. I'm going to move my headquarters to Kuala Lumpur. And the interesting thing, and of course they hired Wee Kim Wee back to run the Singapore branch. But the interesting thing is the Straits Times returned to Singapore only in 1972. They left in 1959 and they came back in 1972. Twelve years later and twelve years after separation, and it was only because the KL government decided that a national paper, because they considered the Straits Times their national paper as well, cannot be 70% Singapore-owned. So there was no choice there to come back. And then what happened was we separated the Straits Times into two. Straits Times came back, and uh, Malaysia started new Straits Times. So that's the English paper. I'll stop there, and I want to quickly talk about the vernacular paper, which was you know, also thriving. Chinese language press, you know, has, the current press has been around for 100 years. Uh, the earliest paper started was something called Lat Pao, started in 1881. Nanyang Siang Pao, uh, started by Tan Kaki in 1923. Uh, then we had, um, let me see, one more paper. Uh, Nanyang Siang Pao, sorry, Nanyang Siang Pao was uh, 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 Tan Kaki's paper, uh, merged with uh, Sinchu. Sinchu was founded in 29 by the Tiger Balm King, uh, Aubun Ho. And um, then we had Shin Min Daily, started in 67 by, by a Hong Kong writer called Louis Cha and a Singapore, um, uh, the founder of Axe Oil. And the Straits Times Press bought uh, Shin Min. Uh, and they've been competing with Wan Pao until last year. Malay papers was the same plethora of Malay papers and Tamil papers, you know. Uh, first Malay paper was in 1876. Um, uh, even more Tamil papers. First Tamil paper was 1887. And in fact, when they came out with the first paper, they celebrated the Golden Jubilee of Queen Victoria. You know? Unfortunately, the only papers that have survived are Brita Haryan, which was launched in 57 by the Straits Times, and Tamil Murasu, which was uh, founded in 35 by uh, an Indian uh, uh, businessman called Sarangapani. So that's a quick run-through. Now let me get to post-independence. Now post-independence, uh, government involvement in this, uh, uh, Singapore media is, a, is a, a tumultuous story. So let me quickly get there. Um, there are two, two, the, the interventions in the media came in two forms. First is crackdowns against newspapers and editors, and then the interventions to reshape the media landscape. Yeah? So 
First, the crackdowns. 71. Closure of Eastern Sun. The closure, I mean, the, the owner himself closed it because he, he was exposed for having uh, obtained money from China. Uh, Singapore Herald, paper was suspended because they were funded by foreign sources. Uh, yeah, so that, that's it. those were the two, two papers. Big, you know, I mean, newsroom was in, in uh, upheaval. Uh, then in 71, there was a crackdown in that same year on Nanyang Siangpao. Four top executives were detained. They included uh, Li Mao, Sang, Mao Seng. Uh, this is the son of the, the founder. Um, and the editor-in-chief, chap called Shamsuddin Tung. Uh, they were accused of glamorizing the communist system and working up communal emotions on issues over Chinese language and culture. So, paper ran a blank front page in protest, uh, had a press conference calling for an open trial, so it was a big fight. After that, they, 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 they had written, they had been released for, uh, after they confessed, and they filed affidavits to, to deny their confessions, went straight back into jail, and uh, Mao Seng was detained for two and a half years. After that, Li Yu Seng, his brother, was detained for five years. So it was a, a big event for them. As if that was not enough, in 76, there was a crackdown against uh, Barita Haryan editors, um, two top editors in Singapore, two top editors in, in KL, and they too were arrested. This was a, a, a famous character called Samad Ismail. So let me then go to Lee Kuan Yew and the Straits Times, you know, um, the knuckle duster era. Uh, Lee Kuan Yew, at that time, as Turnbull said, you know, I quote, Lee Kuan Yew had always been openly dismissive of journalists in general and the Straits Times in particular. At a general rally held in Fullerton Square, for example, he denigrated the local press. He said, not, they're not so bright go into political science and sociology. When they cannot get a good job, they go into journalism. And we are supposed to have a free press. He said, their, their analysis is completely off the mark. They do not know the basic thing about men and politics, and et cetera, et cetera. So he, he went on for that. Yeah. Now, so this happened, and his constant hectoring against the, the ST had one good thing, which was uh, ST management and his board devoted much time trying to improve uh, uh, the quality of the paper, but progress was slow. But then one kerfuffle happened when J.B. Jaratnam won the Anson election, and Lee Kuan Yew blamed the Straits Times again. And he confirmed the view, and he said, quote, it needed reorganization if it could not put its own house into order. So this caused consternation in, in, the, in the Straits Times, and this was what led Peter Lim to go and ask SR Navan to come. So I come back full circle to that part. Yeah? Uh, Navan came, uh, if our morale was very low, and he did, he did as I said, he, tried, he did his best to patch the relationship. But unbeknown to Nathan that 
Lee Kuan Yew was preparing another major reshaping of the media landscape, and this time in the Chinese media. So in 1982, government steered the merger of Nanyang Xiangpao and Sinchu Jitpo under a new holding company called Singapore News and Publications Limited uh, with Ma Baotan as the CEO. The move came as a big shock because the two papers were fierce rivals, uh, as were the owners. Um, but, and the reason was that the commercial viability of the Chinese press, due to the increasing dominance of the English language uh, and the lack of ability to hire uh, good journalists to maintain high standards, uh, was resulting in their, their lack of commercial viability. Now, that was not all. I mean, if it was just merger, no problem. But the government gave the Chinese media a newspaper license in English and also gave a Chinese license to the Straits Times. So they formed the Singapore Monitor. Straits Times bought uh, Sinchu. But within a year, the Singapore Monitor closed because of the cutthroat nature of the media competition. And so the consolidation of, of that part of the consolidation didn't work, but the Chinese media uh, uh, combined to form Lianhe Chao Pao, Lianhe Wan Pao, which uh, the Chao Pao that you know today. But more was to follow. In 1984, um, the Straits Times Press and the SNPL, it's just two years after they merged the Chinese papers, decided to merge and become SPH. So this was a time when merger after merger, all with very you know, uh, uh, strong you know, uh, government involvement telling them, listen, you're going to die, you're going to die. If you do nothing, merge. You know? So the two newspaper groups cited three reasons, cut costs, you know, uh, wasteful competition, etc. Uh, again, it was viability that drove it. Uh, and there was a, a conscious need to preserve space for the Chinese-speaking population and secure the institutions that sustained Chinese language and culture. And for that, I, I, I must say, Mr. Lee, really, uh, you know, it was active stewardship on his part to, to preserve uh, that. Soon after that came another attempt at uh, re reshaping. This time it was the year 2000. Uh, which Chong Yitzhak covered in, in detail in his memoirs, and I, I won't take you through it. Basically, what happened was when AOL merged with uh, uh, Time Warner, they all thought, oh dear, you know, this is going to be the future of media. They are going to swamp us. We better bulk up. And they tried to merge SPH and uh, MediaCorp. It didn't happen. Instead, what happened was, same, same story, they gave uh, TV licenses to SPH, print licenses to Mediacorp, both to become big uh, conglomerates. After four years, they surrendered and went back. And now we're back, as, as I, Chong actually said, um, and he very ruefully said, I'm trying to remember, um, the equity holdings meant little. In the end, he said, they could not hide the cold reality that the media industry was back to square one. And that was just up 2004. So let me now come to the last. So that's the, that, that was the story. There were three big merge, you know, reshaping of the, uh, uh, of, of the media sector. 
I am going to finish soon. <clears throat> last part, uh, the last two decades. Um, <clears throat> I want to speak about the digital uh, uh, disruption and then come to the latest uh, uh, in, in uh, Singapore media. Yeah. Now, SPH's quandary all along was that in the face of all this internet disruption and digital disruption, we were the living example of the incumbent's dilemma. This is the flip side of the innovator's dilemma. In our case, it's not as if we had our heads in the sand and didn't see the coming disruptive technology. And we did see that. But our problem simply was that disrupting and cannibalizing your own lucrative legacy business is easier said than done. In fact, it's just so hard to do. Um, so, I mean, as editor-in-chief, you know, I, I used to get invites to talk at newspaper conference and, you know, I, I, the theme was always di digital disruption. There's one chart that I use repeatedly to show the disruption. Let me show you the slide. Can I have that slide? Yeah, this is one. Now, this is a famous slide that's been used thousands of times by everybody. And this was done in sometime in 2012. What it shows clearly, if you look at the blue line, the year 2000, this is Google ad sales. The year 2000, Google's had no revenue. And then they discovered digital advertising. By 2012, in, in 10 years, they were already at 46 billion. And the crossover point was sometime in 2009, if you add the green line, maybe 2010. So in a decade, they, and this is the, the, the red line, is the sum total of the newspaper business revenue. All newspapers put together. By 2010, Google had overtaken the whole lot of them. So this, this, this was what we were faced. Now, I used to tell our audiences, Google and Facebook are eating our lunch. But nowadays, I'm a bit more charitable. And I tell them that actually, no, they're not eating our lunch. They're just going and having their lunch at Google and Facebook. And they haven't come back. So yet, you know, not yet at least. So that was in 2012. Guess what? Let me show you what the latest uh, Google ad revenue is. I'll skip this one. Uh, they're now at 209 billion. And just look at that gap in 2021. Look at the growth. So these are powerful uh, uh, internet companies, tech companies. Uh, the same, I've got the same chart for Facebook. And if you look at it, they were way below. They're almost close to zero. And now they are 114 billion. So between the two of them, you know, they, they've really, you know, uh, cleaned up the ad industry market. So SPH, meanwhile, you know, we saw a secular decline, but we didn't fall off a cliff. Um, uh, but it was a slower decline. Uh, and in 2020, we did make a loss with the COVID and everything. We made a loss. Not, I won't blame the COVID, but it made it worse. And 2021, too, we, were, we, we made a loss. But the saving grace, and I want to talk about the saving grace, 
is that our legacy media, and I don't just mean SBS, I mean all our media, MediaCorp, everybody, um, never lost our audience. Um, uh, for SPH, uh, while the print readers fell, the digital readers uh, um, made up for it. Uh, across all SPH platforms, the reach is about 73%, which is pretty decent. Uh, this is print, digital, magazines, radio. Um, and, uh, uh, and one metric also we track is young readers. Uh, um, interesting that our between the 15 to 24 and 25 to 34, in other words, below 35, we have about 46%, which is not bad for legacy media. Yeah? Uh, so going forward, one, one area to watch is uh, how regulators in the US review their, their internet, which I'll talk about later. In fact, I want to show you that slide about what this is. Uh, I, I didn't show you this. I was going to show you the next one. Um, it's called, go forward, uh, it's called the Section 23, 200, 230. And this is something I'd like, I want to flag to you. This is called the 26 words that created the internet. This one. And if you read it, no provider or user of interactive computers shall be treated as a publisher. Or any information provided, any other content provider. So basically, I'm just a platform. You can put whatever you like. I'm not responsible. Yeah. So uh, I, I want to now talk about this uh, SPH uh, uh, Media Trust, and I'll end. Uh, I'll get straight to the point. Uh, the news from Parliament this week uh, is that S uh, the Media Trust will receive annual funding of 180 million. Uh, I'm sure the SMT will use the, the grants prudently, uh, but it does come with a heavy responsibility. Uh, we have to demonstrate that they are worthy of the funding. Uh, and it's also an acknowledgement that what we've been saying, that trusted and credible media is a public good. But it can't just be a slogan. We'll have to live it. We'll have to guard it. We have to you know, make sure that we don't betray it. Um, uh, and the newsrooms will no doubt Welcome the assurance of editorial independence, but this is going to be uh, a controversial area. Already, uh, well, the, the key quote from Josephine for me was, she said, no, gains, no one gains if these products lack credibility and are ignored by audiences. On the contrary, we are funding them precisely because they, are, they do have readers who trust them. Uh, but already, you know, in Parliament, uh, uh, Pritam Singh, the leader of opposition, has already uh, raised queries about what, how Singaporeans will be assured that their content will not be, quote-unquote, tainted by allegations of uh, interference, by political interference. And the problem for us is that, you know, to taint with allegations is easy to do. To disprove or prove them is harder. This is why I, I have all along taken the line, since joint, coming back to the, to the SMT, that even if we get funding, the proof is in the pudding, in particular the judgment of readers. And if we lack credibility, no one, no one will read us, no matter how much money they, we get. And that's not, you know, that's not what we are about. 
So a final thought is that this is a new model, a kind of commercial uh, public uh, model. It'll take some time to work through. Some of us had made hopeful predictions about this new model. So uh, Alan Chan and I will, will know the, the predictions that we had. So some of us are happy that uh, because the listed company model we could see was not going to lead us to a good place. Uh, so let me end by saying this is now the new stretch of the long road that we are on. And I hope the next media person that comes along to speak on this subject will have good results to share. Thank you very much. Yeah. Thank you, Mr. Daniel. Mm. For those watching the lecture on Facebook, please submit your comments and questions through the Facebook comment box. For our audience members here, please step out to the mic to ask your questions. May I now invite Professor Chan Heng Chi to start a Q&A question, Q&A session. Thank you very much for the riveting and comprehensive tour de horizon of the Singapore media landscape, more accurately, the print landscape. Mm. I think you underestimated uh, how long the winding road <laughs> would take. <laughs> but you have tackled, chosen to tackle all the key issues, I think, and highlighted Singapore's attempts, or more accurately, Mr. Lee Kuan Yew's attempts to shape a media model that works for Singapore, that serves Singapore and Singapore's needs. Now, you know, people talk of models for the press, and there are three models, maybe more, that come about, and you've described some. Uh, there's liberal democracy, and even in liberal democracy, there mm. are degrees of mm. freedom of press. Mm. Of press. Mm. And you saw, in, you demonstrated that in the United States, no caveats. Other countries, there are caveats and there are press councils and so on. Mm -hmm. And you can have a libertarian press, you know. Mm -hmm. And you have the totalitarian, communist, authoritarian press. That's one. Now, in the 60s, as a political scientist and as someone interested in development, we read a lot about a development press. Development journalism or developmental journalism. I think that is what you were trying to describe. Mm -hmm. And in a way, Singapore was searching a bit for that sort of model. And there were two ways of looking at a development press or development journalism. One is development done by the experts, the engineers who wanted to bring development to communities. And how do you communicate to people the goals of development, what you have to do? The other was a straight Development press or developmental press is to support the country mm. or to, the lead, to support, support the country them. in nation building. Mm -hmm. And this was in the 60s, a lot of new states mm -hmm. were coming on. Mm -hmm. And I think we, Singapore, Lee Kuan Yew, in fact, he didn't probably read this, he would disdain this, but he was reaching out for this development press model, development journalism. Mm. And as we know in the press theory, there's theory and practice. Even in the liberal democracy press, mm -hmm. in the model, you have theory and practice. And liberal presses, or presses in liberal democracies, we've seen, is it all liberal? Who owns it? Who controls mm -hmm. it? Mm -hmm. 
ownership dictates a lot of things, you know. And people can buy a press and make it an advocacy press for a particular point of view, a particular ideology. All this is coming out today. So I say, even in a liberal democracy press, you know, the practice may be slightly different. And Mr. Murdoch has been pushing his point of view very successfully. In fact, in Australia, as you know, uh, Kevin Rudd and Malcolm Turnbull, two former prime ministers, ran a petition to try to get a commission established to see whether the Murdoch press was controlling too much of the Australian press and pushing a point of view. So, you know, you can see the problems mm. there. My question for you is this. We know that, you know, we are looking for a press and uh, certainly in the early days of our independence, a press that supports government in nation building, in just producing the right policies for the right society. Mm -hmm. Do you think, and you said it, there's room now for diversity? People want diverse views. How would you, re how would you achieve that diversity? Mm. Yeah, uh, that's, that's the question that I, I, I'm posing. I'm saying all this understanding, fake yeah. news and, you sure, know. Sure. Um, because so, so we can put that aside, you know. Right. I mean, assume we can, we can deal with fake news and propaganda, etc. But among reasonable people, reasonably you know, uh, uh, coherent arguments. You can make two very different arguments on, on everything from, you know, minimum wage, you can, you know, uh, economic policy, etc. cetera. Um, I, I think that we need, going forward, to, to engage with more groups of people and have more debates over in the Will you forward. publish them? Yeah, of course. I mean, we do. Why, why do people think that we don't publish? Of course we publish. You know? Um, well. Okay, you, you, you may... <laughs> exactly. So the point is, I'm trying to find out is, what, A, number one is, why do people think that, you know, that, that they won't be published? Let's go find out. Second thing is, and it's got, actually got nothing less to do with, with the government than actually maybe we've got a group of people that we work with, etc. So we ought to go out and look for different views to come in and invite them to say, hey, I saw a piece there, would you write for us? You know? mm -hmm. uh, so I, I, I feel that uh, uh, let's get the facts, is what I'm proposing. You know? Go out there, do a poll, uh, get someone independent to go do it, and then move in that direction. I, I hear what you're saying. That, yeah. uh, and if it, indeed it is because we can't publish, we don't publish, then we've got to engage and say, hey, this cannot continue like this, you know. You've got to, and I, I don't think that is the case. Uh, our op-ed pages, you know, uh, we, we, we have control, we will, and, you know, op-ed pages, you're talking about a different group of readers. Yeah. We're not trying to influence people in, in, in the local news pages. Uh, so I, I think there is room, and we must do it. Is yes, one, you see, yeah. and you've answered the question. One question I was going to ask you, and will still ask, is this. You know, the Straits Times is seen to be the voice of the government. Mm -hmm. You know, you've explained that mm -hmm. you don't, do not apologize for that, and indeed, I also see some role mm -hmm. that the press should be 
explaining government policy well, you know, mm. and uh, if it takes a stance that you support the policy, of course. Mm. The question is whether you would have op-ed pieces that differ mm. from the policy. Mm. And would Straits Times run it? You can explain the policy very well. Mm. But, you know, I see a bit of this debate in foreign policy, I have mm -hmm. to say. You have one point of view and mm. you can publish a foreign policy op-ed which differs from yeah, the, the mm. foreign policy we are yeah. pursuing. Yeah. That happens. But in domestic policy, less so. Mm -hmm. And would Straits Times publish that? I, I you know, I, I, I can only, I can't speak on behalf of, you know, the people in the Straits Times, but I would like to say, I would like to think so, for sure, that we should. I, I, I think they should, is what I'm saying. You know, right. that you should go out and uh, have more voices. But, you know, I, I would say that some of this, um, the, the, the descriptions of the Straits Times actually carry over from 19, you know, God knows when. Mm -hmm. You know, people form their opinions, they haven't changed their views, but actually, I, I, I tell you, you know, I get criticized by, by opposition party people all the time, and I said, you know, if we didn't carry you, nobody would know of you. Mm -hmm. And the reason they know of you is because it's carried in the legacy media. And you look at all the Pritam Singh, Sylvia, everybody, the amount of space they do get in our newspapers, and where do you think they, people, people find out about them? So I personally think that it's a little bit unfair, you know, I mean, I think there's a lot of space given to them. And I don't see why in the op-ed page, I mean, if we're doing it for, for the news pages, I don't see why we can't do that in the op-ed pages. So I, I hear you, and I think that there, 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 there could, maybe that's the reason why we must go out and, and poll people and see whether they, their views are up to date or not, you know. But I think we get a bit of a bad rap uh, from just a bit of legacy, because we are the legacy media, so if we had issues before, it just takes a long time for them to see that we have changed. Yes. But you raised a good point, because we've got to make a decisive uh, uh, move so that people know, ah, you have changed, and then maybe views might, might differ. Uh, right. Let me follow up with another question, uh, because I'm not seeing questions come in. Am I getting the right pad? The, uh, the question I have, again, for you is this. You've been now in the press 30 years, mm -hmm. um, uh, Patrick, and it comes back again to this. Uh, have you had a period where you thought, you know, that... Uh, you really felt there was more space and room for the papers to mm. print what they wanted. The mm. space had expanded. And there were, there were times when the space contracted. Mm. And if you felt that, to what did it correspond? Was there an external event or there, were there domestic events mm. that changed the circumstance? And so, you know, the loosening or the tightening Mm. happens. Okay. I, uh, my immediate response to that is it depends on who is the PM. Just check this. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, for sure, when Lee Kuan Yew was the PM, 
He was a real activist. Uh, he, um, uh, he was really vested with the media in the sense that he knew the power of the media. So he really engaged them. In fact, in, among all the three uh, PMs that I, you know, from PM Go Tok Tong and, and, and Nisha, he was the one who gave us the most time, you know, to kind of talk to us and what do you think, what, what do you think of this? Why Indeed, not? Yeah. Yes. He gave us a lot of time, a lot of engagement. Of course he was trying to persuade us, you know, to his point of view. But he did give us the time, he did make an effort to kind of like tell us what, you know, why he's doing what he's doing. And I found very early on from talking to him is that actually the reason uh, he had, uh, you know, and lunches with us and all that was, at least speaking for myself, I would just tell him exactly what I think. He would scold me, he would, but he, I knew it registered in his head, you know. Mm -hmm. And, I, you know, there were times when uh, I tell him something, he didn't know. I, that's the other thing. People don't tell him things, so I'm the one who tells him things. So he calls me, I said, yeah, I'll tell you. What do you think of this? I said, it stinks because of this. And then he said, oh, are you sure? I said, yeah, I'm sure. And as I walk out, he's already told his peers, call this fella. He wants to check what I just said. So I can't give him bull, you know. I have to be accurate, I have to tell him. And he gave us a lot of time. So under his time, although he was really, you know, he, he, he would track what we write about, but he engaged. Then it got easier, you know. Go Chok Thong, you know, he left us, you know, we had good, good relationship with him. And I think that with uh, Li Shen Lung, you know, no issues. He understands the media well. He doesn't need to have, you know, try and shape our views. So it's gotten better. You know, mm -hmm. so I, you know, I, I told you all the things that Lee Kuan Yew had to say, you know, he, he knuckle dusters and all that. All that is history, you mm -hmm. know. So I think there's now a lot more space for, for the media, you know, for us to do things. So, for, you know, I, I'm, I'm surprised you asked, oh, you know, will we run? I mean, there, if there's a good piece, if I'm the editor, if you write me a good piece, you can disagree, I, you know, I will run. I'm sure my co colleagues, you know, Warren, etc., you know, will, will, will be the same. So I, I, I wince a little bit when you still feel that we won't run. I mean, actually, we will. Mm -hmm. Try one, you know, get somebody to write now. Let's see I, whether. Yes. I have a few questions here. Yeah. Uh, let me read the, the question from Latasha first. Latasha, mm. you talk about the inaccuracy of the World Press Freedom Index. In your opinion, how should press freedom be more accurately measured? Well, you know, the Reporters Without Borders have uh, uh, kind of monopolized this index. There isn't any other index. So, uh, you know, I, I would like, first and foremost, I didn't go into it, I would like uh, to look at the methodology, you know, to see whether you know, uh, it, it's accurate. I can tell you one thing, though. Uh, most people don't know this. You know, I, I, I tried to say, you know, when we went to 160, I thought I said, what, what? You know, so I said... Oh, it's Sudan, Singapore, yeah, uh, Somalia. So SSS. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> so I looked at the... At, I was trying to look at the criteria. Yeah. Um, and uh, I, it, it's hard to find it. But something struck me, which was that they have, I think, about 
six criteria. I, I, I you know, there's, there's uh, a whole bunch of it. And then there's a seventh criteria, which is uh, the number of journalists who are killed, murdered, you know, arrested, etc. So there's one number. And, uh, and it said that we actually measure two uh, indices, one with that number and one without that number. Okay? Oh. On journalists murdered, we got top marks. Right? And then they said... Because they were not murdered. Yes, yeah. yeah. So, you know, we, you know, Just to be clear. Yeah. <laughs> oh, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, so we got... To, sorry, for not being murdered, correct. Uh, and, and what they do is they take the worst of the two. So I thought, what kind of index is this? I measured two indices. So we are number 160 when you take out that, that, that criterion on murder. I have no idea what we will be if you put that back in. So I, I say, so I, I have my doubts about the methodology. I wouldn't, you know, uh, until I see it, I can't. Should decide. our press yeah. engage with the, you know, people I, who create you know, this I, index? You know, I've been uh, editor chief for I don't know how many years. Nah, not once did they want to engage. Not that I, you looked know, for them. looked for them. But you know, I would have thought. You know, if they had come and said, can I, can I come and talk to you about press freedom, I, I would be happy to see him. Right. But there is a, a little bit of uh, um, opacity in the methodology. So, yeah. you know, to the question, I would say, first, let's go try. I mean, I don't want to rubbish them. I mean, they've been doing it for a long time. But there should be some kind of audit of that methodology is what I would, I would press for. Sure. Mm. Uh, now, Joseph Lim has an... There's a question, Joseph mm. Lim, yeah? On the Media Trust, mm. uh, how does SMT assure us of editorial independence when it gets the money, its money, mm. from the government? And more importantly, with powerful NPPA hovering in the background, mm. besides producing a good product, do you think changes are needed in the laws to relax the government's hold on the editors and management, at least to give more perceived leeway to editorial independence. Mm. I, you know, the, the, I said in my speech that my, my answer to that is we put out a newspaper every day, right? many newspapers every day. We can't run and we can't hide. You read it, you know whether we are balanced, we are fair, we're giving you know, alternative views, we're giving a full picture. If you see a very biased article, you and I can spot it instantly. You know? so, so this independence is a little bit something in their heads. They think that, you know, that the government is telling us what to write. I'm saying to you, the judgment can be made very easily. Just read the paper and you can tell whether it is one-sided or not one-sided. So I am confident that going forward, we will be able to show that you know we will produce good balanced articles that you will read and be you know informed by better still educated by the the question is how can i assure them i don't know how to do it what is it that you want me to demonstrate you know what would satisfy you you know it's 
tough. How, how do I do it every day apart from here? You know, it's like, you know, you're telling me, cook something. I say, I cook it for you and you taste it. If you like it, then I've done a good job, you know. So that for me is the easiest, you know. I, I just do my job. Or I no more do my job, but, you know, my colleagues do a good job. And, uh, you know, it, it, and if, if the judgment is that this is a terrible paper, we will know very quickly, you know, that we're doing a bad job. Well, Hassan Jaffrey has put out this question very easy. Will Straits Times publish a parliamentary speech by an opposition politician as it does for government officials? We have. I mean, can I please confirm? Of course we have. The guy never reads us. Next time I must, you know, every time you publish, you must put out a press release. <laughs> I mean, we have. I, I, that's I, I have I read you some. Have, yeah. Yes. Okay. You know? Can we do more? Yes. Yeah. You know, but they must be worth publishing. Not that they're not. I'm not saying that they're not. So yes. don't don't give me. But what I'm saying is, we have and we will. Mm -hmm. I, actually, do you know who complains the most about articles never being published? PAP MPs. <laughs> you know, they there never, are many of them. Yeah, there's so many of them. I just say, well, sorry, nothing. Nothing uh, said, uh, yes. you know, uh, moved us, so that, what can I say? Not that I took the decision, but, you know, mm -hmm. we get lots of material. But I, we get complaints from both sides. So, you know, we must be doing something right yeah. once you get complaints from both sides. Yeah? But we have. I can tell you we have. Now, uh, we still have some time. Mm -hmm. So, Lian Xiao, Lian Xiao has uh, posed two questions. I'll use mm -hmm. one question first. The media should allow for diverse ideas that natures... Oh, sorry, that's not her question. Could you... Oh, is the subscription model really viable for legacy media outlets mm. like Straits Times, especially when so many news outlets provide stories for free? Yeah. Okay. Um, Good question. Uh, we thought very hard about this. Uh, we do have about 400,000 paying subscribers. So we are making, we are making progress. And these are people who pay 400,000, 400, right? Yeah. Across, you know, there are three paying papers, Straits Times, Chapao, BT. The rest are free. Uh, Burita is also charging, but they've got small numbers. And Could you speak louder? And no, so we are, we, we are going along that road and we really have not pushed very hard, you know, our sales. We, we don't sell overseas, uh, we don't sell to corporates. You know, I would love to come to NUS and tell NUS, listen, I will let everybody in NUS, you know, read the Straits Times. You just have to pay me a small fee, you know, but you get it, you get the whole content free. I, if we did that, we can grow. I'm convinced. Mm -hmm. uh, we, we studied it and uh, there are uh, case studies, good examples of newspapers that have succeeded. Of course, these are you know, uh, uh, big names like New York Times, etc. And we are not there yet mm -hmm. in terms of our coverage. But we want to aspire that, that direction. Now, can we give it free? Yes, we can. You know, but... Uh, I think the test of whether a paper has value is if people are prepared to pay for it. Actually, yeah. I noticed, yeah. yes. uh, Patrick, that a lot of uh, 
presses that used to give content free are now charging Correct. and putting subscription. Yeah. So which was the, the second point I wanted to make, which is people are coming coming back. back. And indeed, they are yeah. they are realizing that uh, you know if you go and fight in the free space, you know. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's even more people out there. So at least if you take yourself and go up and serve your readers well, uh, a lot more papers are moving in that direction. And I'm glad that we started very early, Charge. you know, uh, you know, under all our CEOs, Alan Chan, Chong Ming, etc., we charged, mm -hmm. you know. And of course, you, you know, we experimented with different kinds of paywalls, so we, we can put content before the paywall, which is free, and then behind the paywall, etc. So all of COVID is all, all free. So, you know, we've, we've, done, we've done a lot, you know. Yeah, and yeah. I would like to make the point, in a way, a plea to readers that if we want quality mm. journalism, yes. we should pay because yes. the, yeah. the organization has to survive. Yeah. Journalists have yes. to be paid, you know, yeah. and you want good stories sure. and the means, resources yeah. for them to go after the yeah. stories, yeah. you know, so. So just to also add to him that there's a lot of content which is free, which yeah. is not behind the paywall. Right. Now, there's a question from Mei Chang. And her question is this. The media should allow for diverse ideas that nurtures deeper understanding of justice, solidarity, and our identity. It should not be uh, us versus them. Given this, in the fast-paced environment of traditional media and social media, how can we allow for time to reflect and publish neutral standpoints and information that will help to create collective understanding of issues and generation of sound knowledge and trust? So, so the question is, is asking me, how do I get how, that material? Right. How do you actually you Encourage know, provide, people? yeah, uh, allow uh, the space, I mm. guess, mm. for this deeper, uh, more thoughtful articles, you know, on solidarity, identity, etc., mm. and uh, you know that you can publish. Well, we can go out and and uh, solicit, you know, contributions, but you know, if they don't come, and uh, you know. I think I, the I'm academics try to yes. write for you, sure, you know? sure, but not enough on identity and okay. uh, fair point. I, I take yeah, that sol point. justice, solidarity. Yeah. I mean, no. these are the sure. topics. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there is a, um, a bias in the media to go f after the newsy items, you know. I mean, Russia, what's happening, and all that. So lots of you know, and and partly also you know, even the academics are, are, are writing more on those areas and. There's a lot of material, China, US, etc. So, so if if we get a piece that comes with a deep, you know, piece on uh, solidarity, uh, it you know you've got to be super duper to 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 you know claim space, you know. But it's a fair point. I think we should not be dominated by by news and newsiness, even in our commentary pages. Uh, now, I have hardly time left, but I want to read this. Uh, post by Timothy Anand, Anand Viras, sorry, sorry, Virasekara. Mm. I think uh, Sri Lankan origin, mm. probably. Yeah, 
And as he says, Mr. Daniel, thank you for the lecture. Thumbs up. If you were in Mr. Lee's shoes, would you have approached media governance differently? Would you have taken a more, con more contest of ideas approach, for instance? Hypothetical. <laughs> easy for me to say, of course not. But, uh, <laughs> um, no, easy, of course I would, but uh, no. Uh, would I have done things differently? I mean, that, uh, you see, Lee Kuan Yew did things the way he did because he was a real fighter, you know, and uh, he had tremendous ability to look beyond the horizon, you know, and how would it affect us? How would it, you know, he was always thinking about that. Mm -hmm. And uh, the, the, the point was, the point is that he would then want to get that done, mm -hmm. you know, and it's very hard to tell him, uh, I don't think so, you know, it's not easy. So he was very passionate about the things, whether it was in the media, the way he shaped it, etc. Uh, so he was a he was a activist. He wanted to get things done. Uh, so for sure, I would. I, I I'm not him. You got to be really tough and really strong to say this is the right way to go. Do it, you know. Even though it's nothing to do with you, you know, it's not government agency or something. This is your private company, media companies. You know. So I think there are few people. I mean, Go Talk Tang never did that. Lee Shen Lung is not. He's, he'll call the chairman and say, "This is what I think. You are, you better think about this." And then the board would decide. He'd leave it. So I would approach like a good corporate person. You know, this is how I would do. Well, yeah. Now, finally, this came in bold, so someone really wants this question okay. answered. Eh? Last one. Besides the Singapore audience, will SBH try to expand its reach overseas? What is its priority, the local market or the wider audience? Uh, well, definitely, we are going overseas. Of course, we want to keep the local audience. That's no doubt about that. So it's not either or. Uh, we want to grow locally. Uh, we've got good reach locally, uh, but we've got to make sure that we, you know, through diversity, whatever, keep the local market. But we have not done enough, not even, you know, 10% to go overseas. And we will, for sure. And I think we will succeed because I do think we have a product that can travel. So tell the man, watch out, we're coming. <laughs> it's going to happen. Yeah. Well, thank you very much, uh, Patrick. Yeah. You know, right. I found this fascinating. You know, it was long, but it was worthwhile. You know, thank and you. I saw your paper. You know, mm. earlier, and you've left out quite a lot. Mm. So there's a lot there. So um, the uh, let me you. say that uh, you know it's thank been you. a pleasure. Thank to you. Thank you. Very kind of you. Be in conversation too. with you here and to listen to you. Thank and you I'm sure much. the audience yeah. uh, enjoyed this presentation as well. Yeah. And thank you very much for being with us this afternoon. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Cheers. <coughs> thank you, my dear. Thank you, Prof Chan and Mr. Daniel. We've come to the end of today's lecture. We would like to hear your views on the event. Please click our link on the Facebook feed to submit your feedback. Mr. Patrick Daniel's second lecture, titled Regulating the Darker Side of the Internet, a Global Challenge, will take place two weeks from now on 2nd March. 
Details will be on our website and IPS Facebook page. We hope to see you then. Thank you all for attending today's lecture. Have a good evening ahead.